Well, hello again, and welcome to another episode of A Thousand and One by One, where each week we take a film out of the book, A Thousand and One Movies You Must See Before You Die, discuss it, analyze it, and ultimately decide whether or not it belongs in the book. My name is Adam St. John. My name is Ian Woodington. And we are back at it, another recording session. Ian, how are you? I'm, I'm excellent. Great. Um, we're gonna we're throwing something in new uh, with our episodes. We're gonna give you something that we've seen recently that you won't find in a thousand one movies to see before you die. Um, just a little either recommendation or uh, you know a nice stay the hell away from this movie because it's not worth your time. Um, Ian, what do you have for us this week? Well, I've actually got a TV series this week. Uh, Perfect, Jack Ryan on uh, Prime. On Prime. How how, how, how is it? It's so good. Well, I'm a I'm a big Clancy fan. I spent. You know, a couple of summers just plowing through his stuff. Um, you know, the the movies have gone through their ups and downs. I think nobody's going to argue that Hunt for Red October is the high watermark as far as the Jack Ryan series is concerned, and Alec Baldwin being the best of the Ryans. I honestly didn't mind Harrison Ford in Patriot Games and Clear and Present Danger, but they started to really veer away from the idea that this is an analyst caught up in a world that he's unused to. Yeah, and, that's and, fair. And Clear and Present Danger became much more of an action film than I think probably most fans of, of the books were anticipating. Sure. Uh, I did really like Willem Dafoe's Clark, though, the side character. I don't know if you've seen Clear and Present Danger, if oh, you it's, remember It's been Dafoe. a while. Yeah. I knew he was in it. Yeah, I knew yeah, he was in it. Dafoe is incredible in that. But anyway, the, the series really does justice um, to the Jack Ryan legacy and Krasinski, who, of course, everybody knows from The Office, yeah. is really trying to make a name for himself, obviously, with A Quiet Place Quiet out place. earlier this year, making something of a director of himself. I haven't seen it yet, but I'm, I'm really excited. I've heard it. good things. Yeah, yeah, I haven't seen it either. Yeah. Um, but the series, um, they kind of change the origins a little bit. They really flesh out the relationship with uh, the Greer character, who in some of the movies was played by James Earl Jones. Um, here he's played by Wendell Pierce, who uh, fans of the Wire, Wire yep, uh, yep. will be very familiar with him. Uh, does he it, still does he tote a cigar in this? Is yes. He, oh, is he? Oh, does oh, he yeah. still? I was Absolutely. just saying that as a joke. That's yeah. great. Okay, no, he perfect. does. Um, but what it does is really takes Jack Ryan and puts him into, you know, the troubles that we're seeing today, like a lot of stuff in the Middle East and cyber terrorism and and things like that, and. Uh, it really follows the format of a Clancy novel. I mean, it is. It's literally like watching one of his books, which is the highest recommendation I can give it. If you're a fan of the Clancy books, you are not going to be let down, especially when it comes to little details of spending um, the amount of time that they do with the villains and the people in their world. The uh, main antagonist family is a huge part of the series, uh, as is this young drone pilot. Uh, he Clancy does a lot of things in his novels where he introduces characters who you're like, why are we spending time with this guy or this or this woman? What what consequence are they gonna to play in the novel? And he does something in the series which is a complete game changer, which is very indicative of of Clancy's work. It's just a solid series. I blew through it in three days. I just I couldn't stop. And how many how many episodes? Is it's it? only eight. Oh great. Okay. Yeah, it's, cool. Yeah. That, and which is perfect format. Yeah. For TV, six to eight episodes, I think is is perfect. I can't stand this twenty two or twenty four that most. Well, yeah. that's like basic basic cable. ABC. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, but yeah. HBO and Prime places like that they, are really getting it right with yeah. that that six to ten kind of thing. Yeah, I would agree. What do you have for us? 
Well, we haven't talked about the movie that we're going to talk about today, and I'm not going to say it yet, but I think the movie that I saw is in line with what we're going to talk about in terms that it it makes you ask a lot of questions. And the movie that I watched recently is called Holy Motors. I don't know if you've seen I Holy Motors. I adore Holy Motors. And so um, the very, very basic plot of it is there's a man who may be an actor. He's something. Um, he basically gets driven around Paris all day. And he plays, I want to say, seven different characters. Oh, I think it's a few more than that. It's, it's almost, seven or nine. It's, it's almost a dozen, isn't it? Well, no, because remember, she, he had that many appointments. He comes oh, in yeah, yeah. and yeah, like, yeah. you have this many appointments today. And he basically spends the movie in a limo dressing in and out of these different characters that he ends up, you can't see me doing the air quotes, but playing around Paris. Um, and, you know, the opening and the ending... You know, I still have questions about what our director was trying to say about that. But ultimately, I think this movie gets right to the meat of what it is to be an actor and the ridiculousness of having to change characters so quick. And when when does it stop being real and start being, you know, completely artifice or, you know, the, the blurred lines between acting and reality? And maybe that's not what they were trying to say, but that's totally what I got from it. Um how do you feel about the limos at the end? I, again, that's that's what I mean. The yeah. opening is very weird with her, the. I'm not sure if it's him or not. I don't think it's him walking through the wall into the movie theater. Yeah. The cars at the end again was like. It's it seems like it's a different movie. Well, I I have a little insight into this because I after seeing the movie I have to do research. I have to go. What is going on in this man's mind? Oh yeah. So, high school proms is the whole genesis of that feature. He was just sitting there and, you know, there was a problem going on or something like that or some kind of high school dance or secondary school dance, whatever the equivalent is in, in France. And he's, he's just watching these kids getting out of limos and he's just seeing them and wondering what their stories are and then extrapolating further. Well, what's the limo story? Sure. What, is, what does the limo know and what does the limo see? Yeah. Um, my absolute favorite moment in that is is kind of a um, you would almost say it's like a an intermission or an honor act. Oh, is the accordion, the accordion sequence that was awesome, which is a cover of one of my favorite blues guitarists, uh, R.L. Bernstein's. It's his um, uh, "Let My Baby Ride" is the name of the song, and that accordion version has become one of my anthems. I play the living hell out of that song on a weekly basis. Yeah, I mean, I if I'm if I'm being honest, it's either that scene or the scene where he's playing a hitman who's basically assassinating himself. Yeah. Um, one of those two scenes would would go up there as as one of my favorites. Um, uh, and I was spellbound by the uh, the CGI sequence, the uh, where they're filming the green screen stuff. I mean, it was visually interesting, but I yeah, it was it, yeah. And, you know, I watched it fairly recently. I watched it a couple of nights ago. And yeah. so I'm still in that realm of, like, what did I just see? What's sticking with me? You know, what, you know, and, and if, if it was in this book, I, I, you know, right now I'd be in that world of, like, I don't know. I don't know if it should be in the book because it's, it's, you know, I'm still trying to wrap my head around. I think it should be. I saw it a couple of years ago, and instantly I was like, this should be in the book. Well, you are a strange cat. I am, yes. Um, I try. Yeah, well, good, good. And I'm trying. Perfect for what we're doing. Um <laughs> So those are our recommendations for this week. Uh, we're going to get right into it. Um, 
So if you followed along with our podcast so far, um, we started off with probably our most known film so far. We went to Stand By Me. Yeah, we kind of, like I said, we softballed it in with that one. It's yeah. a good starter. And then we, you know, we we got a little darker and a little little more obscure with Requiem for a Dream. Not totally off the grid. It did have some award recognition, but, you know, not as well known. And I think we got a little more, you know, if you're not, if you're not, a, a film buff, you might not know Terrence Malick's first film from the 70s. Um, but you probably know Terrence Malick. Sure. I think if you are not a film person, if you don't have a thousand one movies you must see before you die, if you're strictly going to see, you know, the Marvel movies and, you know, whatever the big summer blockbuster is, you are not going to know the movie that we are talking about today. Or probably have even heard the man's name. Exactly. And we are talking about Andre Tarkovsky's Stalker. 1979, uh, based on the novel called Roadside Picnic. Um, this might be a good time to uh, disclaimer that um, there's a lot of Russian names. Um, when we talk about the actors, I'm not even going to say their names. I'm going to say their character names because I don't want to butcher the Russian. So that's, neither, neither do I. That's that was, what I'm that was say. my that was my plan too. Perfect. Great. So, and Ian, feel free to help me out with the plot here as we go along. Um, but basically. Uh, as far as I'm aware, um, the plot is this man. He's called a stalker. We find out what that means later, um, and he is going to help the writer and the professor into the zone. Yes. Uh, so in the novel, I believe they make it a lot clearer that it was actually an alien visitation, and the writers, who are two brothers, um, I will attempt to pronounce their last name, Strugatsky. That's that's how I have it. That's that's what I've got. Yeah. Uh, again, I don't want to do any injustice to the Russian pronunciation. Um, or to they, the Russians in general, because yeah. they're actually funding this podcast. I don't know if you know that. Oh well, that's we got deep, deep Russian money funding this podcast. Oh, shit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll uh, we'll keep them happy. <laughs> um, yeah. The novel, from what I've read, and I haven't read the novel, but from what I've read about it, it's a lot clearer, and it's it's takes place over several years, and it's, it's like yes. a four act structure kind of thing. And yeah, they, that that was a blatant change that Tarkovsky yeah, made yeah, this to make it in not one day, but apparently it was inspired by, and the reason why it's called Roadside Picnic is it's inspired by. I guess they were looking at the world around a picnic and, you know, when we come in and we set up our blankets and our picnic baskets and we leave our refuse behind and things like that, you know, what is, what is nature and what do animals think of that and what must it be like for them to come through almost like crime scene investigators and go, well, what happened here? Yeah. That's, that's kind of what I got as the, uh, the basis for the novel and where the inspiration came from. So the, the, the movie doesn't delve into any of that. I mean, it yeah. doesn't tell you, why the zone is there or for for what reason or how how long it's even been there you get an idea that it's something kind of post-apocalyptic maybe yeah but it doesn't make that clear either um so yeah he takes the the writer and the professor into the zone at his you know his wife's insistence that hey i thought you were going to stop this because you've been in jail once before for going in there it's illegal to enter there it's cordoned off with a somewhat military presence absolutely but it also seems kind of easy to sneak in i mean they make a big deal oh see i would disagree because they have the rail car that goes directly in you think at some point they would have like shut that off well because they just hop on a rail car and then they're in do you know what i mean it seemed a bit are you talking more... about not after they're in the car yeah well, so so yeah getting there 
is a little more difficult. But once you actually get to that little bit of railway and the rail car, you know what I mean? Well, they just still kind get, of they're, they're still just, getting shot at. They're still getting shot at, but they just kind of ride in. You know what I mean? Well, but I, the reason I I think I enjoyed that aspect of it is you know that they're getting shot at from a distance. Obviously, that whatever this zone is, it really is something that those troops are not going to mess with. They're yeah, no, not I, going I, I think there. they mentioned that too, is that they yeah. are... People, They'll never go in there. Yeah, people are deathly afraid of it. And yeah. so if some people sneak in, they're not going to risk their lives going in to get them out. Yeah. Uh, so, so, they, so the zone. And within the zone, there is a place called the room. And in the room, there is... The, so in the room... That is where your your deepest desires will be fulfilled. Yes. My, I mean, I might have misphrased that from how it no, is no, in the no, movie, but that's yeah. that's essentially what it is. Yeah, it's almost like it it can. I mean, you may go in there wishing for wealth and riches, and they do talk about a former stalker who sacrifices his brother in order to get where they're going to the room. His brother dies, and he goes in there, and of course, you know, his wish should be, oh no, I I want my brother to come back from the dead. You know, I I wish I hadn't sacrificed him, but deep inside his mind he's a very selfish man and he ends up wealthy beyond his wildest dreams and he, they talk about how he can't deal with the guilt of sacrificing his brother just to end up with a load of money and so I think he hangs himself he ends up hanging himself within yeah. a week yeah. yeah yeah and so um so another thing about the zone is that you can't just that that the path to the room changes because the zone is changing you can't ever go back the same way. Uh, he called what is it? it's called a, a, a death, a, a maze of death traps. Yes. I think at one point yeah. is, is how he refers to it. Because fairly early on in the movie, it looks like they can just flat out approach the room. The writer just goes off on his own. He's like, well, it's right here. Yeah. I'm just going to walk right up to it. And, and then something stops him. Something yes. kind of inexplicable. They don't really say, you know, the, 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 lands, the landscape doesn't physically shift but there's definitely a hardcore tonal change and i think there's a fog that moves in yeah slightly obscuring it he gets a warning yeah essentially which you know the stalker actually says you know i mean i'm paraphrasing but something to the extent of the zone warns you like that's a gift don't you know don't he tells both the writer and the professor you need to treat the zone with respect multiple times and so the the professor or the writer does come back and you know they have they go a different way right they've and they do try to follow the stalker and i guess we should mention their their um, intentions i mean the writer is just looking for inspiration you know he's a guy i mean the first time we meet him you know he's got that floozy with him and yeah. the stalker sends her away and you know he's become you know complacent and you know wants to get some of that you know something of a muse back and so that he can become a better writer the professor's intentions however we don't know them until the very end of the movie i was going to say do you want to get there yet or do we just want to yeah, we can you know we can get there in time okay because but... i really want to talk about the final minutes of that movie because that i wasn't convinced until there's a shot at the end and one thing that we should mention is i've got the I've got it here. There's 142 shots in a movie that's 162 minutes. So most of those, well, not I shouldn't say most of them, but a lot of those shots are four minutes or more. Yeah. Which is to me that that speaks of a director who is very comfortable in his craft. And I want to I want to even call it the the Tarkovsky linger. Yeah. I mean, he just keeps that camera going. Yeah. He which I love wants you to see. I don't. I love. I don't love it. I like it. There are times where I felt like. You you know your craft, but you should know when to break. It it felt monotonous at times. 
Like, yeah, I would say he's the the Russian equivalent of maybe like an Inaritu. Hmm. Because he Inaritu has has been doing the same thing a lot recently in Birdman. <laughs> okay. And, and the Revenant. Yes. Yes. In terms of in terms of style. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And there's no there's absolutely no reason for Birdman to to look like that or to be like Alfred Hitchcock's Rope, where Rope is in the book, and I'm very excited to do I that can't, episode. That'd be good. Yeah, I, that'd be good I love that film. You know, the whole film is meant to look like it's shot in one continuous take, and that's fine when you're making something that's in real time. And again, I'm gonna I'll just say it right now, I'm gonna butcher Birdman when we get to it. There was absolutely no reason for that film to be shot like that, other than the fact that, oh, we can do it. So yeah. let's just do it. There's no reason for it. They're, they really limited themselves artistically by going... Because the film doesn't take place all in real time. It oh, takes place over several weeks. Yeah. There's no reason for it to be like that. It's, it's an unnecessary distraction. But I, I digress. Yeah. We'll get back to Stalker. <laughs> um, we were still describing the plot. So, yeah. So well, one, yeah. And so... And so... And... And and we'll delve deeper into the into the plot, but just in terms before we you know we talk about stats and and, and reviews and stuff. Well, there we could get that out of the way right now because there's not a lot. There is almost no information about like how much money it made or what it cost. Well, not that I could find anyway. No, and I, I no I I agree. Um, but in terms of I think in terms of budget, we got to talk about. What happened with the original filming of this? Oh movie. yeah, no the uh, the original negatives because they were shooting on uh, a new film format. The Some Russian new Kodak. Yeah. yeah, the Russian labs didn't know that he had essentially shot all the exteriors. I had heard it was something to the extent of half the film had yeah. been shot. Right. So yeah, I'm gonna say that's probably yeah all yeah. the exterior stuff sure. at least. Yeah. Because a lot of the film does play place outside. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and they destroyed it all. He ended up. Firing his cinematographer. Yep. I mean, it was he was very distraught and almost gave up on making it. Which I'm glad that he didn't. That he went back and finished it. Why well, I'm too. Yeah. Because it is. It's an astounding piece of film. It's. Yeah. It's. It is. Uh, it's monumental in terms of. Well, it's monumental just in the storytelling. It's monumental in the the quality and the patience and the dedication to it but it's monumental just when you know that they when you know the backstory yeah. when you know how much they shot oh absolutely and then to come back and basically redo the whole movie well the other thing it's monumental for is that Tarkovsky died as a result of filming it and so did a couple other of his crew members because of where they were filming it outside of this so it was, I, I can't remember one of the guys that they interviewed uh, about the making of the film talks about how they were filming by this river with this frothy, you know, this this the river was like foaming because it was of a all runoff the, of yeah, something, yeah, all the nuclear waste that was going into the river and their exposure to that, yeah, and that's essentially, you know, uh, Tarkovsky died, you know, a few years later, eighty nine ish. Well, he was, I mean, he was young though. I mean, he wasn't, yeah, you know, he wasn't especially yeah. old, no, and he certainly, we didn't see the full potential of, uh, of you know, what he was capable of. I mean, I'm sure he still had many more in him. I mean, there's a there's a listing on Wikipedia of all his uh, unproduced scripts. Well, um, speaking of that, this is, that's a great segue into um, talking about the other movies in the book that Tarkovsky has directed that, that's in there. Um, so Solaris? Got, Solaris is one of them. Yep. Uh, the Mirror, 
and Andre Rublev. Which I think just recently, a couple months ago, was in Criterion. In Criterion. Yes. I'm very excited to see that one. And, so, and so Solaris already is. Yeah, that's been in there and, for a few years. Yeah, in the mirror it isn't. It's the one yeah. that hasn't made that yet. But his first film is uh, Ivan's Childhood. Which I hear is a really good oh, starting point. Oh, you mean it's Criterion? Yeah, it's, yeah, because I don't think it's yeah, it's, it's, it's not in the book, book, but it's it's on Criterion's label. Um, and I I hear it's a, a great first feature. Good. Oh, cool, cool. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely try to watch it before we do one of his other ones. So yeah, we can absolutely. So we have up. some comparison. Yeah. yeah. Um, accolades, awards, stuff like that. Nothing really to report here. Um, it is currently number one ninety one on the IMDb two fifty. Um. I'd say it deserves its place, if not higher. I think it's good for where it is. Yeah, I'm glad a movie that's as long and as foreign as this one is is on the list. Yeah, I know that can be that can be daunting to the sort of average moviegoer, and so I think that I think it's impressive that it's it's that high up. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Rotten Tomatoes, hundred percent, hundred percent, with a ninety three percent on the audience. Yep. Yep, absolutely deserved. That's 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 pretty impressive. Um, and obviously reviews, you know, are more. Yeah, I wanted to call out. Uh, Do it, Derek Adams, writing for Time Out said Tarkovsky conjures images like you've never seen before, and as a journey to the heart of darkness, it's a good deal more persuasive than Coppola's. Which is a bold statement, not one I a hundred percent agree with. Sure, but I I like the sentiment there. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. I would agree. I, I have one too, um, and I don't actually know where this writer um, posted this, but I, so I know I kind of introduced you to the um, the movie trivia schmodown yeah. thing. Um, and uh, somebody who participates also writes about movies. His name's uh, Whitney Seibold, and um, he wrote about Stalker. And I'm just going to read the last little paragraph. It says, Stalker demands a lot and perhaps deliberately provides little in return. It is a circuitous film, but... When seen in a broader scope of some of Tarkovsky's other films, his better-known masterpiece, Solaris in particular, one can see that he was interested in exploring the notion of unfulfilled dreams. What happens when you can have anything you want? What happens when you don't get it? And I, I, I kind of like that. That's great. Because it, do, I mean, it, it does demand a lot of you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I took probably three separate 15-minute breaks watching it just to kind of let it settle Mostly because of the the lingering. Like, I found myself needing to kind of stand up and get some blood flowing. Um, there were times where Tarkovsky's holding the shot made me lean in. And there were other times where him holding the shot made me kind of sit back. And I was like, okay, you're, do- you're doing this thing again. And it's not that I was less interested, but it's like he had that one trick and he just kept... It's maybe one too many times yeah. in a movie of its length. It, it is, I will agree, it is a little too long. I think you could probably trim here and there about ten minutes of it out. Well, and I you, don't think it needs to be. I don't as either. Long as it but is. did you did you did you find out anything about that? No. Okay, so apparently when he was screening the film, somebody and you know this was in Russia, so there actually was a I w- I might have the name here. Um, Goskino. Yes. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but um, a government group for the the Russian state that basically. Oh, I did read something a, about this. Approved yeah, yeah, rumors. Um, they said that it was it was they felt like it was too long, so he actually a he made shots longer and his response was I am only interested in the views of two people one is called Brisson and one called Bergman yeah and I love that I did find that quote and I loved that and I I mean not I not only do I love it because it's just a nice kind of ballsy thing to say but this was like back this is like USSR days like I feel like I felt like that was just impressive to say to the state. 
Yeah. So I'm like, good on you. Fight for your art. Absolutely. Um, Whether you like the movie or not, you can't deny that the man stood by his work. Oh, oh, absolutely. You know, he was willing to die for it, which he eventually did. did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, And this also, well, (laughs) that quote aside, it's kind of funny to say that this was the last film he shot in Russia. Right. The the other two were, you know, he was um one was in, in Italy, I think. And one was in Spain. Right. Okay. Yeah. And and funded by those respective countries. Yeah, exactly. Probably because of how he I would have to imagine that he because of the way that he was standing up to the Russian government, they were probably like, Yeah, it's you know, yeah. we're gonna part ways here. I know we talked most about the plot, but there obviously a lot of specifics we haven't touched on yet, so I'm just going to throw it out there. Ian, what are what were some of the big things that you took away from this film, whether it was specific scenes or moments or how you felt? Just to start us off, what, what jumped out at you? And Tarkovsky himself denied, from what I was reading, a lot of the biblical references that are in the film, which I don't understand how he could do because there is so, there's, there's so many of them. The film really deals a lot with... I, I felt that towards the end, the, the stalker was almost comparing himself to a not not a messiah figure but certainly something akin to Christ like I mean they they talk about uh, during the the sequence where they're resting and I guess we didn't we didn't mention that uh, this film anything that's outside the zone is done in that that sepia tone and then everything in the zone is that very lush technicolor yes, like yeah. it's a very green I didn't know what to I I on in my notes I just kept referring to it as a golden hue because it's not quite sepia but it's but they're going for that it's it's almost reminiscent of uh, some silent films it's a different color it's not in one of the documentaries I watched the guy kept referring to it as black and white I'm like don't don't that's, that's not black and white no, it's not black and white don't do that no <laughs> um but it is a very when they get into the zone the first time that hard cut to just yeah, the green, I, I love that hard cut. Great, that's fun. They don't make a big deal out of it. I wouldn't. Would, I mean, they don't at all, no. which I think is great. It's just okay. Now, now you're in here. color. Yeah, yeah. You're in the zone. It's in color. Yeah. Deal with it. Uh, anyway, so the the biblical references in it. Obviously, there's uh, in the scene where they're resting. Uh, there's voiceover talking about Christ meeting the the two men on the road, and then of course there's the scene uh, later when they're almost at the room where the the writer finds a crown of thorns looking thing. He puts it on his head and the writer gets irritated about that and tells him to take it off. Um, and he's talking about the end at the end where he's laying there in bed and his wife is attending to him after they've gotten back. You know, where is their, where's their belief? What is the, I have the actual quote here. Ah, they're, um, so, so the, uh, the actual quote, what he says to his wife while she's attending to him in the bed is, you know, their capacity for faith is atrophied you know where's their belief you know he's there's a lot of angst in this film and if you don't want to go the biblical route with it uh the other the other route for interpreting a lot of the themes for me anyway is dealing with the angst of you know the educated people you know falling away from having belief and and bickering about the 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 writer and the professor they deal a lot with bickering about the differences between art and science again yep. in that scene where they're resting you know the and the professor is just trying to get some sleep the writer is just going on and on and on about you know art being unselfish and the professor says to him as he's nodding off uh people are still starving though what do you live on the moon or something and you know, what you're being very ignorant with a statement like that you know art is of course selfish yeah it is yeah 
Yeah, I mean, even art with a purpose is still going to benefit the people who are, who are doing it. Yeah. Or, I mean, ultimately, I mean, it's hard to do art in a vacuum. Yeah, So absolutely. So, um, yeah, no, I feel like... Uh, I feel like this film is, is Tarkovsky projecting a lot of that. I mean, I don't, I don't know what life in Russia was like in the late seventies. Sure, I, I'm sure it wasn't great, but he, he definitely has some angst about that, about faith and belief, and you know, who knows? Maybe his inner circle of friends were, were changing. Maybe this is a. Uh, my thought is maybe this is a, uh, a response to, you know, people's ideals changing. I know there was a. a flux of you know early what was i reading in the mid about right before he started making his films about 61 62 there was an influx of western media that was allowed into uh russia and so he started seeing films that he otherwise never would have seen so who knows how that changed sure both him and you know the people around him so yeah. like I said, what i keep coming back to is this this film just deals with that angst about ideals shifting yeah, I don't know what interpretation you took from a lot of those conversations, but I think a lot of it had to do with trust and not wanting to accept somebody else's belief. You know, the professor and the writer, in a way, are having to give over so much control to the, this stalker, who we never find out how they end up meeting, how they know each other, if they just kind of found him illegally. Because we we find out early on that the stalker basically was in jail for a while. Um, and here he is going right back out to do it again. It's it's interesting, you know, and, and, you know, what's your purpose? The one thing I was thinking about a lot once the movie ended, there's this great moment, and I'm jumping way ahead here, but it's kind of what I, what I, what's what been lingering is, so the stalker has a daughter. Um, stalker and the stalker's wife have a daughter, and they call her Monkey, sort of their little nickname for her. And we find out that she, she can't walk, which, and then, you know, Looking back again at the opening scene, you can see the the crutches mm-hmm. in the bedroom that aren't given any any reference really. They're just there, and if you're not if you're not looking hard enough, you wouldn't even know what they were. So we find out later that what like the children, yeah, help me. Like children of stalkers pay a price for what their parents do. Right. There's you get the you get the impression that there's some sort of radiation out there in the zone. Something that if they're in there too long and they're exposed to it, it's going to change. You know, there's going to be some changes genetically to their children. Their yeah. children aren't, you know, full blown, you know, mutants. It's not like some no, X Men yeah. shit or something like that. But but, but. that that the the price of being a stalker, the price of of I don't want to call it a job, but the price of having this obligation, you know, because he takes it very seriously. Well, obligation is the perfect word. Yeah. The, so the price of doing that, the price of showing these people this world. Is you know is your 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 children will have some kind of uh, an abnormality whatever right. that is and they mention her just so she can't really walk and then she's got this fine hair all over her body which you never see but it's I think it's mentioned very very briefly and so while they're in the zone there's a lot of going back and forth uh, especially when they're resting when they're going back and forth between that that sepia golden color and then the technicolor the the bright color but. It's the stuff with the daughter when they've come back that really got me interested because they make it back. We don't know how, but they make it out of the zone and we're back into that sepia color. Back in the rundown bar. Yes. And as they're walking back home, we cut to he, the stalker, is carrying his daughter on his shoulders, but it's in color. And I was like, okay, 
well, clearly we're not in the zone, but we've but now we've got this color outside the zone, and I, and that was like, okay. And after you know, after what two and a half hours at this point, I'm like, okay, this is this kind of real. This kind of reeled me back in. Yeah. And then it cuts back to the sepia, and you mentioned the the conversation with the wife and the stalker at the end when he's he feels beat down and he's just worn out, and she's trying to, you know, encourage him. And we I'm gonna cut. I'm gonna interject slightly there. Do it. Were you not? extremely frustrated with her breaking the fourth wall. I hated it. That really pulled me out. You gotta help me out. I totally spaced oh, so uh So after he's laying there in bed, he's, he has that conversation about their belief being atrophied. You know, the wife gets up and then she sits down and directly addresses the camera and starts talking about the sacrifices. You know, that... that, that their, his lifestyle choices have, have placed upon them and their, their daughter and things like that and how she she knew ultimately the price that they were going to have to pay and stuff like that. She's talking directly to the camera. Okay, yes. I'm remembering her saying that. I get... And well, granted, dear listeners, this movie is almost three hours long, so I I just thought that she was talking to him. No, it is it is a legit fourth wall break. So I don't, I don't know. I don't have an opinion on that. Right. Oh, a okay. moment, just because I don't, oh, I just I, took it as she was talking to him. I despised this. it. Uh, I really wish we could have gone from him being in bed to the daughter, the and the telekinesis scene, and having the train passing by with the, which I love. The train passes by, and you hear Beethoven's Ode to Joy, which is really kind of cheeky. Yeah, but that so, but that's yeah. That was her having, her being able to move the cups, the glasses on mm-hmm. the table. Because the question that I had, and, and again, this is movie is so open to interpretation that I don't think I'm wrong, but I don't know that I'm right when I say this. But So I assume that the abnormality that the daughter has is that she has this, this fair skin, this fair hair or whatever, and, and the, she can't walk. And I assume that's it. I, and then we see her in the, in, in the Technicolor when they come back. So my question for you, Ian, as I'm sitting here, is... Do you think the stalker went into the room during this visit? No. You don't? No. Do you? I do. Because I think he wants something better for his daughter. I think he knows that that she had to pay a price for him being in this position. But I think he I I don't know, in my mind he took these two guys the whole purpose of the of the trip of this excursion was for them to go to the room. That's what he was doing. And then they don't want to. You know, we get, they get there and they ultimately don't actually pass into the room. Yeah, and the prof- well, well, we can deal with the professor's intentions now. You find out that he has has uh, an atomic device with him. Which, uh, see, that part, that was maybe the one part I was like, okay, really? Really? This, we're, this is what this is going to happen? Yeah, but it, maybe, but his decision not to. And how he breaks the bomb apart and starts... Th- so this is the sequence that I love in the film. This is where... This is what makes this film a masterpiece to me, is that long, long shot where they have... They fought each other both mentally and physically at this point. Yeah. And the three of them just sit there. And the professor's taken the bomb apart and he's scattered the pieces here and scattered the pieces there and the camera pulls back. And it's this... And, and it's pulling back into mm-hmm. the room. Yeah. That's, well, that's that's the impression I got too. Yeah. Oh well. Yeah. Because we because the writer almost falls into the room. Yeah. And the stalker pulls him back in. Yeah. So that the camera is definitely going into the room. Yeah. But that that 
that shot pulling back and over the water and then the rain starts to come in through the ceiling that was breathtaking that is one of the greatest shots one of the greatest sequences to me in cinema history that was so breathtaking no no it's 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 good but it's the shot right after that when it cuts to it's just looking at the water yeah. and the water it almost looks like it looks like oil but i don't think it is oil but like it, you see a fish, but then like something starts to cover the water, mm-hmm. but we don't see what makes that happen. We don't see what makes it happen, and then all of a sudden, you know, minutes later, until the end of the movie, we the daughter is now in color in a world that's been all sepia. I I don't know. I I like believing that he went into the room, and that his deepest desire was something better for his daughter. I like that. That's better than something I could have come up with. Well, and I, and honestly, I haven't read anything. Like, I mean, I mean, I certainly, I watched, I read the book that came with the Criterion. I watched documentary on the Criterion. You know, I, so I certainly, I certainly did research on the movie, but I've read nothing that says th- that. That's just something that I clung to. And maybe, honestly, maybe that's my bias because I have two daughters and I, I, you know, I want what's best for them. That's great. But I just, I, no, I, I I like where you're going with this. It just when we when we see her on his shoulders and and now she's in color in a world which should be in that sepia tone. I would just like wait, what? Come on. Well, well, there's nothing to say that that isn't the zone, because the wife kind of begs him towards the end. Hey, why don't you take me in there? Why don't you take me and 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 the daughter in there? So there's nothing to say that that couldn't be the zone. Yeah, but the but we go from the bar mm-hmm. to that shot. To them at home. Like, it's hard for me to believe that they... They went and then came back? Yeah. Well, and then you also have the the train going by, like I said, playing Ode to Joy, which kind of invalidates them being in the zone anyway. So, yeah. I mean, it, 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 it could be either or. It could be neither. I mean... Yeah. yeah. Well, it, it, exactly. Exactly. I don't... I it don't could be whatever... You... It could be whatever the hell you want it, it to be, which is why... Exactly. Which is the staying power of this film. You know I mean? This is why we're talking about this thing 40 years later. Right, and and maybe not just because it's in the book. I mean, I've been wanting to see this film for years. Me too. And I don't know why it's it's come onto my radar and fallen off it several times. Well, and it's, it's dude. We we I know we both love films, but it's harder to just say, hey, you know what? I felt like putting on a three hour Russian film tonight. Yeah, it's of of the uh, the episodes that we've prepped for recording today. It's the one I saved for last. <laughs> <laughs> it. I mean, and it's. I mean, that's the thing about this movie. It's. There's so much to talk about. But a lot of it is interpretive. It, yeah, it really is. How did they not... They both brought in weapons. How did the stalker not know that they brought in weapons? I mean, and, that, I'm not, that's, that, and that's totally fair. And that's not like, the movie's not bad because of that. But it's like, dude, one guy brought a gun. One guy brought a, a nuke, yeah. basically. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're pretty goddamn bad at your job, dude. <laughs> Maybe you should give these guys a pat down or something. Anything. <laughs> But I did. I mean, I actually, I really, really liked the. I, I don't. I don't. I literally wrote down no actors' names because I wasn't even going to try. But the guy who played the stalker, his man. I truly, I believe that whatever the zone and the room and everything was, that he truly respected it, and feared it, and admired it. Oh, I. I mean, I bought that performance from the minute the movie started. Like, yeah. That he. I'm gonna. I will. I'll try to pronounce his Do name. Do it. Alexander K. K. Danoff's no, no, it's not going to work. Yeah, yeah. I, I apologize to any Russian listeners. I'm, yeah, not, you know gonna, I'm not going to butcher that I was beautiful thinking language. About, I thought maybe we'd cut that out, but we're not anymore. We're going to keep you butchering that oh, into this thanks, episode. Man, I appreciate no that. problem. All right, our our Russian 
We sponsors. said at the beginning it. that we weren't going to butcher their names. Yeah, I know, and, and I did it anyway. <laughs> Tarkovsky is the one that we can do. Yeah. <laughs> I can I can probably do the writer's name, Anatoly Solonitsyn. Sure. How about that? There that we go. Great. Did that I just sounds... rede- did I redeem myself a little bit? Well, I'll I'll ask Putin, and we'll figure that out. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah. I, what I was going to ask you is this your your first Russian film? What a what a great question. It's definitely my first Tarkovsky film. And mine as well. Um. Do you? Do, is it yours? No. the The other one I've seen is Battleship Potemkin. Which, of course, I haven't yet. Which yeah. is in the book. We'll, it is. We'll get to it. It'll be a great episode. Is that... That's a silent film. Yeah, but is that... Is that... That's not Eisenstein. It is. Oh, it is Eisenstein. Yeah. Okay. But okay. I believe it's it's co-directed with somebody else. Okay. Dude, that's a great... I, you know, I mean, off the top of my head, I can't say yeah. yes for sure. But coming away from Stalker, I can say that I am really excited to see the rest of his stuff. That... I wasn't... I wasn't totally convinced the moment it ended. I went to sleep... And I woke up going, this is a great film. Like, I instantly, like, in the morning, I was just, I've, I've seen something spectacular, and I cannot wait to get into more of his stuff. Like, Andrei Rublev sounds fascinating to me. Well, and I think not every movie has to do this, because there are some movies that just end, and you're like, well, that's just the end of the story. That's the story literally went this far, and that's where it needed to end, which is just fine. And, that, and the movie can be great. That still, that ends that way. And movies that leave you asking questions sometimes aren't that great because the question might be, well, what the hell was that? Like right. they could be, um, they could be too vague, right? Something right. that that is intentionally meant to like, ooh. But Stalker is just vague enough. It's it falls right in there to where you can interpret the hell out of it and be totally right or totally wrong, and it doesn't matter. There's this great quote that I I had picked up from doing theater, and I think not only does it apply to film, but I think it applies to this movie, and it goes to the idea of you know vague or not vague and it's this idea that specificity elicits creativity and i think where some of those other movies fail is that they're they're they are too vague or it's it's too open this is certainly open to interpretation but the the specificity to the you know he could have just been oh the 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 zone is a it's a mysterious place but there's a lot of backstory and detail and like the, there's the meat grinder the that room the mm-hmm. the walk you know and everything has its which is another fascinating sequence. I was really pulled in at that point. Well, and I kept, you know, there's that there's that shot, I think, when they're resting over the water. And it's like, what, there's syringes and water, mm-hmm. or not syringes, and money and guns. Yeah. And I, I thought that was there's fascinating. Like, isn't like, there, a, there's a painting in there as well oh, somewhere? Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, I, I was just, I was fascinated by that. I mean, what... This is something you could do a series of films, and I know this is not the only adaptation of their novel. There was a, a video game. There's yeah. been a, a TV series. I know the BBC a few years ago tried to get a TV series off the ground that didn't manifest. And I'm not advocating a remake. Yeah, no, I don't think you could do that. I And you shouldn't. <laughs> but you could certainly go back to the source and certainly use this film as a jumping-off point to really do some more exploring. You could do something of like a spiritual sequel to it. I, I would advocate that yeah. more than a remake. This is one of those movies that, well, it's not rewatchable because it's just, it's not like throwing on a, a, a comedy or an action film. This one requires like some serious examination, you know, because I, I saw it once for this and I did, I mean, you know, it's three hours. I didn't get a chance to rewatch it before doing yeah, right, it again, right. but it definitely makes me want to, you know, watch it again. And, and Oh, the next Criterion sale, this is number one on my buy list. And I will probably see this film again before the year is out. Yeah. 
it's it's there's some good there's some good documentaries on there. Yeah, I'm I'm excited to watch. Those. They actually they they interview um, the the ending cinematographer, like because like there's only like at the time of of they recorded there was only like three people alive from the original from the shoot, yeah. and they talked to him about about, about it. Um, he's kind of in and out, you know, of, of what's going. Oh, on. Oh yeah, it's forty years ago. Yeah, but there's some there's some good stuff on there. One thing too that I. So I wrote this down because I thought it was interesting, um, and this is actually in the the essay that's included in the Criterion. Uh, it's called "Stalker: Meaning and Making" by Mark Lafanu, which I might be butchering his last name. I have no idea. Um, but he uh, he writes, "What lies lies in the legendary room, entry into which it is rumored will grant the wayfarer the fruition of his innermost desire." And then he talks about in the book, the magic is connected to an object. A golden sphere, rather than a des- than to a destination. So it's not really a, a room they're going to, but an, an object. Mm-hmm. And that idea of the golden sphere, I think, is really interesting for two reasons. One, because that sepia is not sepia. That's not sepia like Wizard of Oz sepia. I kept thinking it's gold. It's a, it's a weird, awkward gold color. Yeah. And so hearing about this golden sphere made me think that that was an, an intentional choice. Um, but then also, is there is it twice in the movie where the light bulb almost, like it it, it like yeah, brightens yeah, yeah. and then goes out, yeah. And it happens in the in that sepia world, so it's like is the is the is the zone extending into the real world? Oh, I like that too. Yeah, I don't know. Obviously, parts of the book that can't make it into the right. final production, and and Tarkovsky changed a lot of it. Yeah. I think that was the last kind of interesting nugget I wanted to throw out there. Yeah, that's great. I really like that. So I think that's I think that's a pretty good ending point. But before we end, I mentioned my favorite shot. What's your favorite shot? Well, what was your favorite shot? Oh, the the end after oh, they fought yeah. and then the camera pulls back and the rain starts coming through the the cracks and the when they're in the room, right? Or on the very outside. Yes, yes. The camera's going into the room. Right, right. You know, for me, it's either going to be that hard cut. Um, that's so. Good. Or no, well. Sorry, let me let me. The cup of there's the shot before, where there the three men are on that car that that um that rail cart. Yeah, and it's almost we're going into it in real time, and almost the whole film feels like it's played out in real time. Oh, but dude, well here's the thing. Like, so you're hearing the the, the wheels on the track, yeah. right? And and right at that point, they're just wheels on a track, and the camera is slowly going from from face to face to face, and then back. Yeah. But then you like the 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 track sounds start to get like electronic. And rhythmic, and it's like, what's going on? What's going on? What's going on? Yeah, it's hypnotic. And then the sound cuts out the minute that we get that hard cut to the to the the lush forest. Yeah, you get that deathly silence, which is yeah, incredible. So it's either that or the the the, the final shot of the girl doing the telekinesis, the daughter, just because it's like I feel like this is what we were building to, and yeah. how how and why. Obviously, you got to find out for your for yourself yeah. as to why you think that is. But yeah, of of the four that we've done so far, this is the one that I really advocate people seeing. Like, I maybe we've done it justice, maybe we haven't. But I really hope that you know this what sparks some people to see this film. I don't think we have done it justice because, but no, but not because <laughs> not because we're any fault to. of our own. Right. But th- like again, it's like Stand by Me. You can explain. You can explain that movie really easy. Yeah, this got a very. A to B to C point, yeah. you know, it's it's very it's very structured in that way, and that's not making Stand by Me sound like a bad movie. It's not that complicated to explain. Yeah. This movie is complicated to explain. 
Because you have to bring something of yourself into it. Absolutely. And it's not one that just goes, this is what this movie's about. And because of that, we gave you the very vaguest of, of plot lines, and there was stuff that we didn't even mention because it's long. Yep. So I think I know this, but Ian, should this film be in the book? Absolutely. I agree. And if you're going to break down the book to say, oh, you can only see 100 of them or you can only see 50 of them, it's, it's in that list of the ones that you, you – know, the whole book is called Films You Must See Before You Die, but this is really high up the list if you can't make all 1,001. Being as this is our fourth podcast – that's a bold statement, I know. It well, it is, and, and and I'll be interested to see if you know fifty episodes in or a hundred episodes in. I still feel that way. Sure, yeah, and and obviously, I think it. I, you know what? The weird. This might be a totally weird reference, but I thought about Mulholland Drive when I got done with this movie, in the sense that the first time I got done with Mulholland Drive, I was I had more questions than answers. Right? What what is this? Yeah. And it wasn't until the last time I watched Mulholland Drive, which is probably about five or six months ago now, and it was my fifth time seeing it. And I and I I had read something, I don't know even know how I found this. Watch it with this in mind, and I'm not going to say it because I don't want to give it away. But I watched it with this idea in mind, and suddenly, that movie made sense to me. This was the first time I watched this movie. I had a lot of questions, and I'm still very interested in this movie. So, however long it takes before I watch it again, I wonder what will come up the second time. Mm-hmm. You know. And that's that's what I'm most excited about. I think this movie deserves to be in the book because it's going to make you want to come back to it. Yeah, it it demands multiple viewings. There, there, you, people talk about that. You know, you should see this film a couple of times. But there are a handful of films out there that demand you see it again. Yeah, yeah. and this is one of them. I yeah, it definitely is. We, I, and we'd love to hear what you think. Uh, check us out on Facebook. We're also on Twitter at a thousand and one by one. Uh, your interpretations would be awesome. We'd love to hear from you. Yes, um, you can listen to this on uh, Spotify, Google Play, iTunes. iTunes is a big one. If you want to rate and review us, that's great. Tell your friends. We're not going anywhere. We got a lot more movies in this book to talk about. So thank you for listening. I'm Adam, and I'm Ian, and we will see you next week. Bye.